This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There are common sayings that we become accustomed to to uttering and assuming that they are in the Bible. One of the most common sayings is the phrase, God helps those, you can finish it, right, who help themselves. The problem with that alleged verse is that it's nowhere in the Bible. It's just something that seems to make good common sense, and uh, it becomes this kind of common day aphorism. Uh, And listen, there's some folk wisdom in that, right? There's no question that people uh, shouldn't uh, think that the Bible doesn't exhort us to be disciplined and hardworking in everything that we do, right? If you fail to study well all semester, it doesn't really make sense to pray, God, please help me get an A on this test. Or even more specific, uh, we do this all the time, right? We're getting ready to to eat and we're getting ready to say grace. And and yet the food we're getting ready to eat might just be a sweet and savory bowl of great tasting lard. And we have the nerve to pray, Lord, bless this to be nourishing for my body. And let's just be real. It's not going to be nourishing. Nothing in there is going to be nourishing. We're not going to ask God to miraculously change it to some type of nutritional morsel of goodness. That's not what's going to happen. Just pray, Lord, thank you for this food. That's actually the only example we see in scripture anyway, but I digress. We have this idea then, and the idea is God helps those who helps themselves. It's, it's a great aphorism. It's not in scripture. And in some ways, that thought, that phrase goes against Scripture. Why? Because of our nature, our fallen nature, our human tendency is to trust primarily in ourselves and secondarily, if at all, in the Lord. So what does that mean? We are quick to take the credit for any successes that come our way. We may give up passing uh, um, uh, a tip of the hat to God for his part, but the, the primary glory goes to us for all our hard work or all of our genius. And to that extent that we fall or the extent in our fall, we begin to fail to give God all the credit to God. We fail to give him all of the glory. We rob him of that glory. So we think that by helping a little bit or by doing a little bit ourselves, um, we're helping God help us. But the truth of the matter is, when when it comes to, to, to the matter of deliverance from God's judgment, when it comes to the matter of God saving us, the Bible doesn't allow any tolerance for our boasting in anything that we do. We know the verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith and out of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Later we see, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now our passage on this Easter Sunday might feel like it's a little bit unorthodox, but we're going to finish what we started that Pastor Jen just started last Sunday in Zechariah. We're going to pick up in Zechariah 9. Now, Zechariah 9 illustrates a principle that runs all through Scripture. And it's essential for you and myself to understand and apply. God brings down the proud, but he helps those 
who are helpless, those who depend on his deliverance. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those that acknowledge their own helplessness. That's how he saves us. So by way of reminder, let's just kind of look at the layout and the history that Jen has already laid out for us so well last Sunday. Uh, as you look at Zechariah chapters one through six, they take place in the second year of Darius or Darius, depending on who you ask, and they contain Zechariah's eight night visions. In some ways, you might call them night terrors. There's some things that make you wonder, what did Zechariah even eat before he went to bed? But we know it wasn't what he ate. God gave him these very specific visions. And then chapter seven and eight, uh, they take place two years later, and they give uh, Zechariah's answer to this delegation from Bethel that had been concerning some of the Jewish fasts. Then we get to chapters 9 through 14. Now, something you might need to understand, most scholars agree that the book of Zechariah, that prophecy, um, didn't just all happen in one setting. It wasn't just one time where all of these things are being written out. As a matter of fact, some wonder if there weren't multiple authors here, because what we know is that chapters 1 through 8, they occur pretty close together. Chapters 9 through 14 happened possibly 40 to 50 years later. The temple at that time had long been completed. Zechariah is now an old man. Israel is still weak, still vulnerable. They're under foreign domination. Nehemiah hadn't returned yet, right, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You've got these powerful and aggressive neighbors still surrounding them. So the Jews are still going, what if these neighbors attack us? What if they come in? What if they tear down the temple uh, that we've worked so hard to rebuild? Are they going to invade us again? Are they going to carry us off as captives again? They, they were afraid of what could happen. They were afraid of what future might await them for their families and, and their nation. So it's to these people that Zechariah now delivers this message of, uh, of chapters 9 through 14. In many ways, you, could, you can make an argument that you almost have a first Zechariah and a second Zechariah, and possibly even three, depending on how you split these chapters up. And so you've got this, this, the, these chapters that prophesy of Israel's future, and they, they hold roughly two burdens. The first burden is really the one we're going to spend the majority of our time on in chapters 9 uh, through 11, and that focuses on Israel's coming king. Because remember, these folks, they, they've had some of the, some of the prof, uh, prophecies and promises that have been made to them. They've seen those be fulfilled. So they're waiting for their king to come. They're waiting for other things to happen. Sometimes we see areas where God's grace has shown up and we're waiting for it all to be fulfilled. And so we almost forget what's still coming or we forget the things he's already done for us because we haven't seen enough yet. And they're waiting. They're like, okay, we're still waiting for our king to come. Is the king actually coming? And what we see in these chapters in, the, in 9 through 14 is uh, Zechariah reminding them of the coming king. Also reminding that when that coming king arrives, he also will be rejected. And then the second burden we won't spend a ton of time on in chapters 12 through 14, they focus on Israel's comfort, the coming comfort that's going to be there when the nation will go through these severe trials and purging by God, but eventually be delivered by the second coming of that Messiah, of that King, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when you look through, uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at chapter 9, uh, at this first uh, coming of the king that had been promised. And we're going to look at the ways that people responded, the way they were prophesied to respond, and look at how it connects so well to the king that came leading up to Easter Sunday. 
So looking at verses uh, one through eight of chapter nine first, I'll just uh, kind of give you a quick, uh, the quick and dirty of this, because what you're noticing, and, and a lot of this was, was laid out when Jennifer kind of laid some things out for us last week. Um, you're looking at the ways that God had already been promising that he's going to bring folks out of uh, bondage, right? And so they have been that. They've been out from under the bondage of Babylon, and they have finally been uh, back in Israel and still kind of waiting, right? At one point, waiting for the temple to be rebuilt and waiting for this king to come. And now these verses, one through eight, start to describe God's judgment on Israel's neighbors, while Israel is itself spared. And so eventually, many of the folks that Israel's been afraid and worried about God is saying, I'm still going to deliver you from them. I'm going to make sure that you are protected from them. And amazingly, if you really look at some things that are laid out, we don't have time to go into great detail. Many of the details in chapter nine in the first eight verses kind of really outlines Alexander the Great's invasion of Palestine, which took about 150 years, took place about 150 years after Zechariah wrote. So many of the things that he describes, a lot of people assumed that Zechariah could not possibly have written this at the time that he wrote it because it was so specific to the events that would happen over a century later. But we know for a fact what we saw happen in the first eight verses here. You see Alexander the Great's invasion of Palestine. You see, uh, in many ways, apart from the Lord, God is showing them there is no way that Zechariah could have predicted these things. So Jews, years later, reading this, would look back in history and go, there is no way Zechariah could have known this unless God was with him. And so uh, the, those first eight verses are just giving you kind of, here's what's going to happen. And it's a lot of specific things about certain nations that we're not as interested in now. But many of those nations that would have been enemies to Israel, we know historically were taken out uh, by Alexander the Great. Josephus, one of the uh, uh, ancient Greek, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrew historians, Jewish historians, writes in great detail about this. And so we know for a fact that those enemies were taken out. God kept his promise. And we also see in verses 9 and 10, we're going to spend more time there. You're noticing something about the way that Zechariah shows this coming king's kind of two comings. Shows that God brings down the proud, but helps those who are helpless, those who depend on his deliverance. Take a look at verses 9 and 10 here. After the prophecy about the enemies being taken out, look at what God tells Israel. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Now, this is a famous Old Testament passage. If you've been in church any period of time, this is one that often comes up on Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday is when we remember the time that Jesus ends up riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. And so let's just, as, as this passage illustrates that theme, let's look, at, let's, let's look at an overview here just to see just how God is showing that he brings down the proud, but delivers those who trust in him delivers those who acknowledge their helplessness. So, like we said, Palm Sunday, just before the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in precise fulfillment 
of this very prophecy. We see that in Matthew 21 and in John 12. What do we know about that? The Jews of that day, right? The Jews in Jesus' day, they were expecting a powerful political Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah that would deliver them from Roman occupation, from Roman rule. They did not expect a suffering Messiah who would die for the sins of his people. Even though Jesus repeatedly had told the disciples that he would be killed and rise again. They didn't comprehend what he was saying until after his resurrection. We see that in Luke and, uh, and in John 12. We, they, they didn't really recognize or understand. As a matter of fact, the passage in Matthew says they didn't quite understand that, but this was pro- fulfilling the prophecy all the way back in Zechariah. So, so here he is. Uh, Jesus approaches Jerusalem on that final Sunday, and he acted out this public demonstration to show the rulers the people and his disciples, that he was their Messiah. But he wasn't the powerful king they were expecting. He wasn't the kind of leader or Messiah they had really kind of hoped for. He instead was this humble, suffering Messiah that had been predicted and prophesied by Zechariah, by Isaiah, and several others. The ideas should have been understandable. They should have recognized that God had been promising over and over again that that, uh, the Messiah would come in humility, in lowliness, not in a display of human might. This is in contrast to uh, the proud Tyre that we see in the first uh, of eight verses and to the proud and mighty Alexander. Israel's Savior would come in humility. He would come riding on this lowly donkey's colt. Now, what we know historically is that after the time of King Solomon, kings and warriors rode horses, not donkeys. The donkey was a burden bearer. It was used in times of of peace. Powerful kings didn't ride into battle on donkeys, especially not on the offspring, the foal of a donkey. People of lowly rank, they rode on donkeys. Here, this word humble indicates one who is oppressed or afflicted or affected by evil men. It looks at Jesus as our sin bearer, right? Despised by the rulers of his day, bringing God's salvation for those who would receive it. So Zechariah's prophecy, in many ways, is pointing on on two fronts. It's pointing on the immediate salvation of the children of Israel, the immediate protection from their enemies, and the future salvation and the future protection from the final enemy, sin or death or the grave. And so uh, what's the point? Why include that? Why does Zechariah give us this picture of Messiah, of Jesus in this context? They've already had, he just had a bunch of wild and crazy dreams. He's using all kinds of imagery. He's using all kinds of word pictures and ways that leaves us wondering what they mean sometimes. So why go here? Because God is showing his people that through the humility of Jesus, the attitude that we must have to experience, God's salvation is on display. God does not save the mighty. So he didn't bring a savior that just looked mighty. He, didn't bring, he doesn't just save the ones who can help themselves. He ended up bringing someone riding on an animal that doesn't confer this idea of help. 
that doesn't confer this idea of strength. He, he brings this in because he's showing you God doesn't come to save the mighty who just need a little boost from him. God doesn't help those who are able to help themselves. He delivers the weak and the helpless who trust in him, which is epitomized by Jesus in his first coming, riding on the foal of a donkey. Now, these verses should encourage us. They should encourage our heart because they show that God prepares deliverance for his people years before we even know that we need them. There are things that God is preparing for you right now that you don't even know you're going to need three years from now. You don't know you're going to need 10 years from now. You don't know that you're going to need multiple decades from now. But that's the kind of God that we serve. And so he's showing them that in my serving you and in the ways that I have laid my life on the line for you, I'm preparing deliverance for you by serving, not by looking mighty, but by humbly serving. You realize that when Zechariah prophesied this, it would be roughly 200 years before Greece would eventually pose a threat to Israel. And in 300 years before this famous Maccabean revolt that would also happen, that they also needed deliverance from. And yet, God knew, the Lord knew, he knew all of this in advance, and he prepared the victory for his people long before they knew they even needed it. What does this mean? This means that the Lord has prepared deliverances for situations that you might even encounter this week, later this year, maybe even for the rest of your life. Our emergencies never take God by surprise. When we're overwhelmed by some trial or we we need to be reminded that we can trust God and know that he cares for us. Look at the assurances here that, that God gives to encourage his people to trust him. Verse 11. What does he say? He says, uh, as for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. He's reminding them we have a, a covenant in his blood. We have, that was a big deal back then, right? It might sound weird and eerie and, and, and kind of disgusting now to talk about blood in that way, but that was a big deal contextually. It was a big deal for a covenant to be sealed in blood. And that's God's way of saying, I have an unbreakable promise with you. If I said it, I'm going to complete it. Regardless of what your eyes tell you, what your ears are telling you, if I promised you and I sealed it with a covenant, it is unbreakable. So he says, I'm reminding you of the relationship I have with you. And then you look at verses 13 through 15, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill that bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will fly like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and advance with the southern storms. The Lord of armies will defend them. They will consume and conquer with sling stones. They will drink and be rowdy as if with wine. They will be as full as the sprinkling basin, like those at the corners of the altar. He promised to give us victory. He promised to give them victory over powerful enemies. He reminds them in verse 16 that we are the flock of his people, sparkling stones in his crown. Now, there's two commands in this chapter that we should apply. First, with all this knowledge that he's given us, reminding us of the ways that he is, like he did here with Israel, reminding them of the ways that he's already delivered them. He says, rejoice greatly. Look at verse 9 again. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph. Rejoice 
greatly, shout in triumph. And the second command is, we see in verse uh, in, in, in verse 12, he says, return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. This was directed at the Jews who still believed in the God of Abraham, but it yet hadn't yet returned to Israel from the captivity. They had not yet returned. They're still kind of wondering, is it better over there? What's going to happen over there? What, what else is happening? Perhaps they were afraid to move back to Jerusalem. They, they, they may not have had any visible wall and no human army to protect it, so they weren't sure if it still was safe. Okay, sure, we might have the freedom to go back there, but how do we know that by going back there, we're not just going to get overtaken again? The wall's not up yet. Like, okay, there's a temple there. That can go get destroyed again. How do we know? You know what that is, right? You know what it is to have a little bit of safety and then go, oh, but what if we become, we get, we become in, uh, enslaved by the fears of our past? We become enslaved because we don't see enough safety on the other side yet. Even though the, the beginning has occurred and even though the promise has occurred, I just don't see enough evidence that it's fully safe yet. So I don't know that I can move. And listen, there's a lot of times where that's wisdom. But when God makes a promise, we don't need to wait to see all the evidence of his promises yet. We can move and trust his promises fully. So he says, rejoice greatly and return to your stronghold. In other words, rejoice over what God has done and return trusting that he will continue to complete it. This is what God has been showing them here in Zechariah, and this is why he directs it to them. Zechariah is teaching them that God himself is their sufficient defense, the defense that he would be to them and for them. We see that in Isaiah 26, where he refers to God as a wall and a rampart, the safety, right? This tool of safety. And even so, today, many of us, we know Christ as Savior and we have hope in him. But many of us are still prisoners. Many of us are still enslaved to some fears or to some sins. And what God is calling us to, he calls us to see that deliverance by any human source, by any human scheme is in vain. Anything that we use that is nothing wrong with comfort, but when comfort is our ultimate source of hope, it's vanity. Christ himself is our stronghold to whom we return when we have fear, when we have doubts. We are called to return to him. You know, the thing that happens throughout all of the minor prophets that we've been preaching through, the theme over every single of the 12 minor prophets is simply this, return to him. Why? Because we are prone to stray away from him. When I get afraid, I stray away to something else to bring me comfort. God is saying, return to me. That's why he says the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not uh, delivered by great strength. Right? This, we see this in, in Psalm. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. This chapter reveals a glorious promise. This chapter shows a beacon of hope in a dark world. Written to the Israelites, it's a message of hope for all their generations, a promise that has already been fulfilled, including those that have been grafted into the people of God. What a blessing it is to be eternally relieved of my burden of sin. 
Jen talked about this last week, repentance, uh, repentance and salvation. These things are precious gifts, this catalyst for being able to return back to God. Those are precious gifts, gifts given at the highest price. Gifts given that remind us not of how much we helped God help us or how much we helped ourselves. They remind us how unworthy we were to ever receive them, and yet he gave them freely. That's why 1 Peter reminds us, he has to remind us. In 1 Peter 2, he says, but you are a a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This was written to the churches in the Roman Empire of whom mostly Gentile Christians existed. And these verses can appropriately describe the generations of Christians after they passed. What it tells us is I, you, we are intentionally created. God chose us and we belong to him. His plan of salvation is intentional and we are now part of his holy nation. That's why the Easter story doesn't end with the death of our Lord. Yes, we are reminded on Easter Sunday that that promise, the thing to whom, the one to whom we return, he reminds us of what he did to buy our freedom, what he did to empower us to return to him, what he gave up. But Easter doesn't end with the death of our Lord. Easter ends, and in many ways, our promise and our hope begins with him rising again, just like he promised, defeating death, hell, sin, the grave, Christ is victorious. The crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son is love and action. In many ways, in the same way that folks had to be reminded that God had delivered them and then look ahead to the coming Messiah, we now get to look back to the ways that Christ's arrival delivered us and look ahead to the second arrival when all of this is done once and for all. God is reminding us that he loves us so much that he gives us the gift of new life through him. So for this Easter and for the rest of our days, may we reflect on the gift given to us through terrible suffering and share the good news with joy. And I'll close with this story. There was a story of a guy, a man who was fixing um, a TV antenna. It shows you how old the story is. A TV antenna on the roof uh, when he slipped and he slid towards the edge of the house. And as he's falling, he grabs the rain gutter and he's kind of hanging on. I don't know how this rain gutter was this tough, but he's hanging on for dear life and he's swinging from side to side and he's dangling by his fingertips. And uh, he's about two stories above the concrete driveway. And he's just hanging there shouting out. And in desperation, he looks down and he yells, is there anybody down there that can help me? Silence. No time to waste. He just looks up to the heavens. He looks up to the sky. He looks around and he shouts, is there anybody up there who can help me? Just then the clouds parted and a deep, barreling, mellifluous voice booms out of the sky. Have faith. I'll catch you. Just let go. And the man quickly looked down at the hard landing, two stories below. And he looked back up and he shouted, Is there anybody else up there who can help me right now? And the answer is no. God alone will help you if you are helpless and if you depend 
on his deliverance. That's what Easter reminds us of. That's what Zachariah was reminding us of. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who acknowledge just how helpless they are, how desperately in need we are of a Savior. Let's pray. Father, you are our deliverer. You are our Savior. Father, we realize that our salvation is not just in uh, uh, some of the many deliverances that we have throughout our lives. Those things are things for which we rejoice and we praise. But we also recognize that there are these greater things at play. The fact that on this Easter Sunday, we are reminded that in all of the things that you've done, in your living for us, in your dying for us, all of those things are for naught if you don't rise again for us. So God, as we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. We say that in rejoicing. We say that in crying out with great joy that we have truly been delivered and we look longingly and faithfully to your return again. God, may we be a people that is marked not by how strong and how helpful we are to ourselves, but how much we acknowledge our own helplessness, our own reliance on you, because it is you who have delivered us. It is you in whom we find our strength, our hope, our very being. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come now to this time where we celebrate this very truth, this, the ways in which we remember and we long and we show our reliance on the final finished work of Jesus. The same ways in which the Jews were looking ahead to their Messiah to finally deliver them, we get to look back and remember and experience again the very grace of God delivering us. When we come to the table and we celebrate communion, what we do is we acknowledge that we remember the fact that Jesus came for the helpless. We remember there is no greater act showing somebody else's helplessness than for another person to give their entire life. They're basically saying, Jesus shows your body isn't enough to save you, so I'm going to give my body for you. Your blood isn't enough to save or protect you, so I'm going to give my blood for you. Your life, all the ways in which you've comprised your life, all the comforts and the wisdom and the education that you have attained in your life will not be enough to spare or save your life, so I will give my life for you. So we're reminded that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread at the Passover meal. He picked up the bread and he broke it. He broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. Listen to those words. This is my body given for you. Why? Because your body can't cut it. You're helpless. And I'm not, you got, Jesus isn't saying this to just crush you or make you have some lower self-esteem. He's making an observable fact, an objective fact. You, there's nothing in you that's going to rescue you from your own sin nature. So this is my body. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of it. What the Apostle Paul reminds us of in those words, he says that, uh, and what Jesus reminds us of, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we remember him? Because we're trying to re respond to the call that God gave Zion 500 plus years before this, that Jesus ever died. 
rejoice, return, rejoice, and return. So we do this as often as we remember. We try to do, we try to remember this every Sunday so that we can rejoice in deliverance and return to our stronghold. Rejoice in returning. Jen already pointed out the returning is the repenting. So rejoice, repent. Rejoice, repent. So we do this as often as we can remember. This is our greatest hope. This is your hope. If this is something you trust in, if this is what you lean on, if this isn't what you lean on, maybe you lean on some other things. Maybe you hold on to some other things to bring you hope. Maybe you lean on some other things that will shield you from some things that really uh, concern you. Then this meal wouldn't be for you. But our prayer is that for everyone, under the sound of my voice, that maybe this would be the first time for some of you that, you're, that you recognize I have deeper needs than I have the capacity to meet for myself. I am helpless. I'm helpless. And I need Jesus' help today. May that be true for you. Receive the benediction of God today and listen to these words. Listen to the ways in which your King, your Savior, your rescue, your rescuer protects you, holds you, promises to deliver you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. May all God's people say, amen, amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.